is really important because history shows that Europe has never been just Christian, but also Islamic. Not a lot of people know or realize that Spain had the first Islamic caliphate in Europe in the reign of Abdurrahman III in the 10th century. Under Islamic rule, Spain had a really sophisticated, refined culture, which was unknown in North and Western Europe at that time. The scientific, medical, philosophical learning of Islamic scholars that was later translated into Spanish and then found its way into the universities of Northwestern Europe had a really profound influence on modern life in our continent. You just heard from Dr. Elizabeth Drayson, the Emeritus Fellow at Mary Edwards College at the University of Cambridge and author of four books specializing on medieval Spanish history and the Golden Age of Spain. You're listening to the Innovation Civilization Podcast, and my name is Wahid. On this podcast, we're always interested in covering civilizations which had a massive innovation growth spurt that contributed to our shared understanding of life. Today, we'll focus on a part of history that's not very talked about, which is the 700-year Muslim rule in Spain, or Al-Andalus, as it was called. One of the most significant figures in Andalusian medicine was a physician called Al-Zahrawi. He was known as Abu Qasis in the West. He was the court physician to the Caliph al-Hakam II in the 10th century in Cordoba. And al-Hakam was the son of Abdurrahman III. Al-Zahrawi was the most famous surgeon in the medieval world. And he trained in Baghdad. He pioneered really revolutionary and enduring medical technologies and techniques. He specialized in surgery and invented the forceps, the speculum, the bone saw, the surgical needle, the syringe, all of which are still in use today. And he wrote a huge medical compendium. Throughout the episode, Elizabeth goes into the details of the scientific, cultural, economic, and diplomatic innovations, just to name a few that people living in the Iberian Peninsula or Spain during that time were practicing. Muslim farmers knew about types of soil. They were experts in soil nutrition and all sorts of things that we fret over and talk about. The agricultural revolution at that time was a four-pronged attack. The introduction of new crops and the idea of rotating crops, which came so a lot of new crops were brought in and rotated. And that idea came from India. And they brought rice, citrus fruits, peaches, apricots, silk, aubergines, cotton, saffron, and of course sugarcane as well. A lot more coming up in this episode, so stay tuned. Elizabeth, welcome to the Innovation Civilization Podcast. What a pleasure to have you on here today. Thank you very much, Wahid. It's a pleasure to be here. Brilliant. All right, let's get right to it. You wrote a lot of books on the Iberian Peninsula or medieval Spain or Al-Andalus that it's called. Can you define to our audience what exactly those terms mean and what period of history we're talking about and where is this? Well, the Iberian Peninsula is basically the landmass south of the Pyrenees Mountains in southwestern Europe. It's made up of Spain. As it is today, in the Middle Ages, Spain was made up also of autonomous regions, self-ruling regions, including Catalonia, the Basque Country, that's the area we're talking about geographically. Al-Andalus was the name given by the Muslims to the area of that territory that they conquered after their arrival in the year 711 AD. And around that time, Spain and Portugal were ruled by the Western Germanic tribe of the Visigoths, who were Christians, but they'd converted to Catholicism. They were 
were soundly defeated in southern Andalusia by Tariq ibn Ziyad. Crossing over the Strait of Gibraltar, right? Coming from North Africa across the Strait of Gibraltar. It's reckoned about 7,000 troops. So Mm. he had an intention of coming in and seeing what he could win. It all was surprisingly easy. And in fact, the Muslims ended up in control of virtually the whole of that territory, the Iberian Peninsula, except for a small kingdom in the north called Asturias, which is a sort of mountainous region, and they didn't manage to overcome the native people there. They called that area then Al-Andalus. Interesting. I believe the Muslims stayed there and ruled over for around seven centuries, so like 700 years. Is that correct? After that? It is, Wahid, yes. It was nearly 800 years, in fact, altogether. 800, yeah. Yeah, 711 to 1492. That's correct, yes. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's the Visigoths who were there before. You're talking about South Spain and then Portugal. Tariq bin Ziyad. After that, it was the Umayyad Caliphs who came in, Abdurrahman III. Is that correct? Well, yes, it is. Although before that, the Umayyad Spanish dynasty was established in the 8th century by Abdurrahman I, who had come over from Syria. He was exiled from his home near Damascus in the middle of the the 8th century, when his whole family were exterminated by the rival Abbasid dynasty. He was the only one who escaped, and he is actually one of the most extraordinary characters, I think, in Spanish history, in any medieval history, because he came by himself with one faithful supporter, and he set up this quite remarkable emirate in based in Cordoba in southern Spain. He created a kind of model society there. By the time Abdurrahman III came to rule and became caliph, there was a well-established and thriving emirate in the south of Spain. Right. So it's the Visigoths, the Umayyad caliphs, and Cordoba, and then I think it's the party kings that took over, and then the Almoravids, and then the Almohads, and then it's the Nasrids, right, to end it. So that's like roughly 700, 800 years, right? That's absolutely the right sequence, yes, it is, yeah. That's brilliant. So tell us more about in terms of the piece of land there and the civilization. Why should the average person today be concerned or care about that part of history in the world? What's so special in that part of the world? I think for three reasons. It's really important, firstly, because its history shows that Europe has never been just Christian, but also Islamic. Not a lot of people know or realize that Spain had the first Islamic caliphate in Europe in the reign of Abdurrahman III in the 10th mm. century. I think a lot of people don't know either that the Kingdom of Granada was the last Muslim emirate in Western Europe. History in Europe might have been very different if Granada hadn't been conquered by the Catholic monarchs in 1492. That's one really important thing for people to know. The second thing, under Islamic rule, Spain had a really sophisticated, refined culture, which was unknown in North and Western Europe at that time. The scientific, medical, philosophical learning of Islamic scholars that was later translated into Spanish and then found its way into the universities of Northwestern Europe had Mm. a really profound influence on modern life in our continent. Thirdly, the Iberian Peninsula was at many times a place where Christians, Muslims and Jews lived side by side in relative peace and cooperation. They also collaborated through trade, through scholarship and through music. This kind of mutual tolerance sends a really positive message of hope for cooperation and friendship among those peoples today. So yeah, it's really important, I think, for people to have an understanding of this era. That's really interesting. Your three points nicely sets us up basically as we start pulling on the thread of each. Let's start with the fact that there's the relative peace 
similarities between the Abrahamic faiths that you said. I think in your book, you also talk about the golden age of Jews under Muslims that happened. Certainly Maimonides was a product of that. And there's also this concept of convivencia that it is. Can you tell us more about what is this convivencia and what are the key kind of sociopolitical factors that enable these multiple ethnicities and religious groups to live harmoniously with each other? Yes, convivencia. What it literally means is living side by side. And that is the fundamental meaning of it in this context. It was when Christians, Mm. Jews and Muslims lived side by side in medieval Spain. Why did that happen? How was that possible? The key socio-political factor was the Islamic rulers' relative tolerance of other religions. They allowed Christians to carry on practicing their religion and Jews also, provided they paid a tax, subject to a tax called the jizya, and it was levied on on non-Muslims. Christians and Muslims were considered to be people of the book, like people of the Islamic faith too. They had a status called dimi status, so they were protected people. That was the sort of circumstance in which it all arose. There's been a lot of controversy about the use of this term, and there's been a a trend recently to look on convivencia as a kind of romantic myth, which has been hyped up. My view basically is that there needs to be a balance struck between being overly idealistic and rejecting the whole idea of convivencia as unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Because first of all, there's a problem in the fact that it covers a huge period of time, nearly 800 years, as we've said. In that period of time, things changed enormously. The concept of convivencia doesn't mean that everyone got along splendidly all the time. Sometimes Christians did fight Muslims, but other times Muslims fought against Muslims and Christians fought against Christians. And on both sides, people helped each other against mutual enemies of either religion. There were periods such as during the Umayyad Caliphate, some period of Almohad rule, and during the Nazareth dynasty as well, when people of all religions did work together as colleagues and often as friends. Also, they did famously under the patronage of the Christian king Alfonso X in the 13th century. I think for me, the answer with convivencia has to be that there needs to be a balance between idealism and realism. The point you said that it's like 700 years, it's a lengthy period of time to get everything Mm. right 100% of the time. When I was traveling through South Spain, I was quite surprised and flabbergasted by the fact that you had the caliphate, which had like viziers or prime ministers who were Jewish, Samuel de Naged and Hasda Mm -hmm. ibn Sharput as well. Today, you can't really think about it having Islamic emirates or the PM, the most powerful person operationally in the place is of another religion, specifically a Jew. You know, for me, it was just like mind boggling of how that persisted through that time. And today we struggle with spatting between different religions that's there. We've gone backward in terms of globalization. If you read Mm. some of the stuff that's happened before. Yes, the Jews had really had been in the Iberian Peninsula since the time after Christ, very soon after the birth of Christ, and probably even some people even think before Christ. So they had a very long standing presence in Spain and Portugal. On the whole, they tended to have good relations with the Muslims. When Tariq brought his armies in, a lot of the Jewish communities in the peninsula welcomed them. They were installed by the Muslims as caretaker garrisons in lots of cities. There was a tradition or a history of getting along together in that context. And yes, a lot of the Jewish PMs, viziers, were extremely learned, erudite men, very powerful. Of course, the Jewish tradition has emphasizes the importance of learning, as does the Islamic tradition. They were very wise men in philosophy, science, very often in religion too, and very good economists, of course, contributed hugely to the economy. One quite very interesting vizier was a Jew called Samuel ibn Nagrela, who was the vizier of the Zirid Berber ruler in the 11th and 12th centuries. He was a very, very powerful man. Amazingly, he became commander of the Muslim armies, 
which was something right. astonishing, almost unheard of, because that was never, ever done to have a Jewish leader of a Muslim force, ever. In a way, he was very exceptional. He also was very learned, and he created a kind of Jewish renaissance the Hebrew Renaissance in his time and attracted lots of Jewish scholars as well as Muslim ones to the Zirid court. He died a very wealthy man as well when he was 62. So he's an interesting example yeah. of a Jewish vizier. Yeah. I don't think everyone loved him. A lot of Muslims didn't like him, but they respected mm. him at that time. Yeah. And I think a lot of the Jewish philosophers like Maimonides and other scholars started coming up as well. I think they had to learn Arabic. Was, was it the lingua franca back then? Yes, that's true. Most of the Jews would have known how to read and write Arabic. Maimonides himself was enormously influenced by Arabic scholars. He was very influenced by Greek learning too. He was influenced by Al-Farabi, Averroes, in his great work, The Guide to the Perplexed, which is a kind of theological treatise. He's very interested in that, in the relationship between faith and science, which is what had interested Averroes as well. He draws substantially on Arabic scholarship, so he's an interesting example of what you're talking about. And in the translation schools in Toledo in the 13th century, Jews played an incredibly important role as intermediaries in the translation process there, translating from Arabic, often into Hebrew yeah. or into Spanish. So yes, they knew Arabic very well. And when you say it was the golden age for the Jews, do you mean that an average Jewish person living under that time had good socioeconomic rights and human rights and, and as well as everything else, freedom to practice religion? I'm guessing that's what you mean as well for the average person and not only just the vizier. Yes, that's true. They were on the whole very prosperous people. That was something also which carried on under Nazareth rule. It was definitely mm. the case, the Golden Age. Yes, you're right. It refers mainly that to the sort of flowering of Jewish scholarship at that time. But at the same time, that related to a general economic prosperity. And in the Nazareth Kingdom, which of course was a completely Arabic-speaking Muslim state, it mm. didn't have any native Christians in it, but it had Jews. And when the last Sultan, Muhammad XI, made mm. to surrender his city, he wrote one of the clauses of the surrender agreement were to allow the Jews to become on practicing their religion and to be treated equally. Right. Of course, it didn't actually come about mm. afterwards, but that was his intention. It shows you that right to the very end of, of Muslim rule in Spain, really, there was a very important relationship between Jews and Arabs. Yeah. What was it after King Ferdinand took over? Was it the Alhambra Decree where Jews were expelled from South Spain? Yes, that was one of the most terrible episodes in Spanish history because the fall of Granada had been obviously on the 2nd of January 1492. Then Ferdinand and Isabella, the two Catholic monarchs had taken over the Alhambra and they were living in it on a temporary basis. In April of the same year, so just three months later really, they promulgated a decree which, as you say, was called the Alhambra Decree, ordering the expulsion of all Jews from the territories, the lands of Spain and Portugal. And what was appalling about it was it was a complete shock. No one was prepared for it. No one had foreseen it. Ferdinand and Isabella both had Jewish physicians. Right. They'd made plans with Jewish leaders for the next round of tax payments and things. It was all as if everything was going to carry on as normal. And then suddenly there was this mm -hmm. bombshell, if you like. Jews had the option of converting mm. to Catholicism, but the majority of them chose not to do that. They had three months to take all their possessions and go into exile, and they could take very little with them. They couldn't take any money with them. They could take very limited goods with them. The descriptions often written by Christian chroniclers are not particularly necessarily favourable to Jews, but the chroniclers really lament the terrible scenes of Jews going into 
exile, walking to the coast. A lot of them died en route to get to the ships that were going to take them into exile, one of which was Christopher Columbus's ships as well that he owned. Right. But yes, it was a very shocking and terrible moment. That's interesting. <laughs> and it's because I study a lot of Ottoman history. And when I was traveling throughout the Balkans in Sarajevo, a lot of Knesset Jews after the expulsion of the Jews from Spain were assimilated into the Ottoman Empire. A lot of them came through specifically in Sarajevo. I found the local Ottoman governor built a specific synagogue for the Jews who were coming in. To me, it's quite interesting to see such a huge collaborative spirit between the Muslims and the Jews and the Christians when they were at each other's throats. Very fascinating that how the tables have turned so much over the course of the centuries. It really is. I believe, actually, a couple of doctors from Granada, when they were sent into exile, did become physicians to the Ottoman Sultan mm-hmm. of the time. You probably came across that when you were mm-hmm. investigating it. So, yes. Well, moving swiftly forward, let's talk about Al-Andalus itself then and that period. In your books, you mentioned about a lot of the contributions they did, innovations specifically in science, non-science, governance. Can you yes. walk us through some of the scholarships which that time produced and in the innovations that they kind of produced and yeah, why was it kind of so useful? To there are so many things that you could talk about here. I could pick all sorts of things because there were so many. I'm going to pick three particular things. The first mm-hmm. one is in the area of medicine. I think one of the most significant figures in Andalusian medicine was a physician called Al-Zahrawi. He was known as Abul Qasis in the West and mm-hmm. he was the court physician to the Caliph Al-Hakam II in the 10th century in Cordoba. And Al-Hakam was the son of Abd al-Rahman III. Al-Zahrawi was the most famous surgeon in the medieval world, and he trained in Baghdad, and he pioneered really revolutionary and enduring medical technologies and techniques. He specialized in surgery and invented the forceps, the speculum, the bone saw, the surgical needle, the syringe, all of which are still in use today. And he wrote a huge medical compendium. It was enormous in five sections, giving advice on diet, on diseases, on hygiene. And Mm -hmm. the fifth of that book was on surgery. He's known as the father of modern surgery. So he is a giant. Clearly, his influence has has been important right into contemporary times. The second example relates to flying, to aeronautics. If anyone's been ever to Baghdad Airport, they'll have seen an enormous statue at the entrance to the airport of a man called Abbas ibn Firnas. That statue is really interesting because it's connecting modern-day air travel with its distant origins. He was a Berber and he came from a village near Cordoba and he was an extraordinary polymath, he, like a Renaissance man, if you like, only before the time. Mm-hmm. His great interest was in trying to fly. And in the year 852, when he was 42 years old, he attempted the first human flight. This is the first human flight ever recorded. Rather mm-hmm. hair-raisingly, he jumped off the minaret of the Great Mosque in Cordoba. Um, right. And he sort of glided down, but it wasn't terribly successful, didn't really hurt himself. But he wasn't deterred, and he kept on trying to fly until he got to the ripe old age of 70 years old, and he made a pair of wings. And he took these wings up to a hill outside Cordoba. Mm-hmm. He actually flew for 10 minutes before he plummeted to the ground and broke the wings. I think he broke one of his vertebrae as well. But wow. he realized in doing so that he should have had a tail to help him to land. And of course, that's one of the fundamental principles of modern aeronautics. That's why airplanes you know, land with rear wheels first. So mm-hmm. he's viewed as the sort of father of modern aviation and the pioneer of flying. Interesting. He's, he's Never a fascinating. Heard. Uh, wow. Haven't you? No. no. Well, I think a lot of people haven't. <laughs> he was centuries before even any other attempt to fly. Yeah. 
My third example of an innovation is the game of chess. Mm. And I think this is a really interesting one mm. because obviously it came to Muslim Spain via India and Persia. Mm. It's said that the great Persian musician Ziryab, who lived in Baghdad, brought chess to Al-Andalus in the ninth century. And of course, it was a game of represented war, war between yeah. Christians and Muslims, which was designated by the white and black chess pieces. So that's how they used it in Spain. It was incredibly popular. Mm. Um, I mean, middle class and upper class people played chess. The pieces changed a bit probably from what we have mm. now. But I think I think one of the wonderful things about that introduction is that there are wonderful illuminated manuscripts of Christians and Muslims playing chess together amicably. Mm. Chess also finally reached the rest of Europe when Alfonso X, the learned king of Castile, commissioned the first ever book on chess, which was translated into vernacular Spanish, and then it got it spread to north and west and into the rest of Europe. Right. So that's a really interesting innovation. Nowadays, it's a very lucrative game for the expert chess player. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mostly played online these days. As as well. <laughs> yes, it's like that's true, everything yes. else. Yeah. Do you exactly. play Wahid? I do. I do used to play in person. But yeah, now it's especially after COVID, everything's just online and there's like tons of these apps which come about. It's quite interesting. In terms of that, there's also the effects of the quote unquote the Arab agricultural revolution in bringing in lots of the crops yes. and the techniques yes. to grow these crops that pushed through initially from India and then the Arabs push it through Spain as well and your rice and oranges and saffrons and stuff. Can you explain a bit more on what those techniques are and yeah, what effect that had in Europe? Yes, yes I can. The agricultural revolution at that time was a kind of four-pronged attack because, as you said, there was the introduction of new crops and the idea of rotating crops. A lot of new crops were brought in and rotated. And that idea came from India, as you said. They brought rice, citrus fruits, peaches, apricots, silk, cotton, saffron, and of course sugarcane as well. There's a lot of stuff, all the good stuff. It's basically. <laughs> a lot of stuff, a lot of good stuff, yeah. But also, they grew really well in the favourable climate. It's very pleasant yeah, temperate climate. And- yeah. Ideally suited to them. And what helped was that the Muslim farmers knew about types of soil. They were experts in soil nutrition and all sorts of things that we fret over and talk about now if we're gardeners. They knew all these things then. They knew how to graft trees and bushes and create different varieties of fruit trees. Some of those crops were exported and became global businesses, particularly the silk trade, cotton trade. Sugarcane became an incredibly important world trade as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All these new crops and the new techniques then gradually became introduced into the rest of Europe and to northwestern Europe. And there's a wonderful American historian, I don't know if you know him, called S.P. Scott. He wrote the most wonderful history of the Muslims in Spain. And he claimed that their knowledge of agriculture was the most complex, scientific and perfect ever devised by man, he said. He thought it was absolutely first rate. Wow. That was one point then. So we had crops and crop rotation. Then also they were masters at irrigation. They were experts at raising the level of water and they used water wheels called norias and water pumps to to make sure there was a constant flow of water. They channeled the river waters from the Sierra Nevada around Granada and to take water into the city. Those old sort of underground canals and channels are still working today. They're still used today. All this skill in irrigation obviously helped to increase the fertility of the soil and its ability to produce heavy crops. Their crop production became very sustainable and long-lasting and they were able to 
make a huge profit from it. A third interesting thing was the Muslims had a very enlightened approach to land ownership. There was none of this sort of feudal system that was in the rest of Europe of being exploited by big landowners. Farmers were able to work for themselves and for the community without being exploited and contracts were introduced that farmers and their customers each signed them and they were clear about what the terms were. All the farm workers also received a sort of equitable proportion of the crops they planted as a payment. So the that farmers used really to own the land that they used the to cultivate? Own, yeah, did they, they own, own the land? Yes. Yeah. Yes, they oh, okay. owned it. Interesting. Yeah. Probably the last thing which made it really work and why agriculture became so important in the techniques became so important in the rest of Europe was the number of farming manuals and instruction manuals that were written in Arabic. Mm-hmm. The earliest one, I think, was something called the Calendar of Cordoba, and it was written in about 961. Basically, it was a kind of a calendar of agricultural tasks throughout the year. Mm-hmm. The gardener to the Emir of Toledo, who was called Ibn Basal, wrote a book on agriculture in the year 1085, and he gave all yeah. sorts of instructions about soil types, land husbandry. There were a great number of botanical treatises on the science of agriculture, which again got translated eventually into vernacular, yeah. into Latin, and was adopted and adapted in more northern parts of Europe. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll come to the translation movement, but mm. just to land the mm. point home for all our audiences, agriculture at that time was such a hugely influential thing. We're talking about yeah. the pre-industrial revolution, where agriculture yeah. as a percent of GDP for a particular empire, for a particular state, is actually a significant part. These are agrarian economies pre-industrial revolution and henceforth. It was really an important part of their economic pie, which makes it so important as a science. So let's shift gears a little bit. You touched a few times already during the conversation. The Visigoths and then the Muslims came in, a lot of scholarship, a lot of the sciences used to happen in the language of Arabic around that time. Right during the end of the rule or during when they were almost descending, there was the Arab to Latin translation movement. To explain, there was the Greek to Arabic translation movement under the Abbasids. This happened in Abbasid Empire, nothing in the Iberian Peninsula per se. But then after all the sciences and all the philosophy were progressed, you had the Arabic to Latin translation movement in places like Toledo and in Sicily and other places. Can you tell us a bit more about what was the influence of these translation movements? What was the cause of it? Who were the patrons, basically? Give us the whole spiel. Yes, Wahid, Arabic was the language of the Quran, and so it was also the language of power at that time. It was used throughout Muslim Iberia. It strikes me the Muslim love of learning originated in the Quran conjunction to study and to learn as an obligation for Muslims. That was taken very seriously by the Umayyad rulers of Cordoba, and they were constantly vying with the caliphate in Baghdad, trying to emulate it. Of course, they had the House of Wisdom, what was called the House of Wisdom, which was a big intellectual centre. Where translation took place, it was in the reign of al-Rashid. He had this intellectual centre built to house his library. It was there that the Greek knowledge you referred to was translated into Arabic, and then gradually made its way to the Iberian Peninsula. Scholars travelled 
travelling to visit the court in Cordoba brought books, brought texts with them that had been translated. Over the years, I suppose, all the important thinkers of Al-Andalus, such as Averroes, developed the ideas they found in the translations of the Greek philosophers and scientists, and they wrote their own interpretations and their own treatises. Averroes' commentaries on Aristotle, for example, are legendary. He sought to unite religion with science. His philosophy was very, very influential in the northern universities of Europe, in Paris, for example. But interestingly, not among Muslim scholars very much in Spain. He was almost mm-hmm. sort of ignored by later Muslim intellectuals. Maybe he was viewed as being potentially dangerous or a bit too radical, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That was the kind of situation up to the time when what was called the Christian Reconquest began to get gain momentum. The Christian Reconquest mm-hmm. was based on the idea that lands had been lost to Catholicism. They'd been lost to the Muslims who had conquered them, and they wanted to recover those lands. When that idea took hold in the 11th century, which was the main turning point in the balance of power mm-hmm. between Muslims and Christians, a lot of Arabic learning passed to the Christian courts because Muslims came under, who were living in, say, Toledo, in Zaragoza, yeah. came under Christian rule. But they had a body of learning already with them. The court of Alfonso X of Toledo in the middle of the 13th century became really famous. It was an international hub for scholars. People came from all over the rest of Europe to explore these treasures of Arabic learning, and they came to translate. So Alfonso X had a huge number of translators available. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. They worked in pairs or they worked in threes, and there was a Christian Jew and a Muslim, and they translated from Arabic into Latin or sometimes into Hebrew, and then the Latin or Hebrew got translated into vernacular Spanish. When they'd been translated, the foreign scholars returned to their native countries and they took copies with them. And that's how these great works, which had been lost to the rest of Europe up to this time, got disseminated, got distributed. It's the most wonderful example of what we were talking about Mm -hmm. earlier, which is convivencia. There was harmony between people of the three religions in the pursuit of learning. That's a very, very important thing to take away from the history of this time. Yeah. And just like one data point that I came across, and maybe you can verify this, so the sheer volume of scholarship during the Andalusian period. It said that the biggest library in Europe was at the time like St. Gullen, which had 500 titles as we know it. The Cordoba Library apparently had 100,000 titles and 40 volumes just on the catalog of what belongs in the library. We're talking about numbers here which don't add up at all in terms of comparisons, right? So it's amazing. It is amazing. In fact, I've actually seen a figure of 400,000 volumes quoted. Wow. Whichever it was, it was an extraordinary, absolutely mind-bogglingly big number of learned texts. It's just a bit tragic, really, I think, or very tragic, that they, most of them didn't survive, they got destroyed. Yeah, when I actually went to Cordoba, I was searching for the library or the vestiges of the library itself, right? I don't believe they have anything like that anymore. No, no, it got burned, it got destroyed at the end of the Umayyad Caliphate. What a shame. It's heartbreaking, to be honest. Just to go back maybe a minute to to give an example of how that process of translating worked, what I didn't mention was that about a hundred years before King Alfonso had mm-hmm. his scholarly court. It was also the centre for translation, but it was under the watchful eye of the man who was the Archbishop of Toledo then. His name was Rodrigo. Again, scholars came from Europe to translate, but the process was a little bit different. But I think there's an interesting example of how important other scholars saw this body of learning to be, mm-hmm. because there's a man called Gerard of Cremona, so he came from Cremona in Italy. He decided to up sticks and go and live in Toledo. He, he didn't know Spanish, but he went there, he learnt Spanish, he learnt Arabic, he didn't know Arabic either, but had this burning desire to find out about what, what was seen as the new knowledge. And he translated over 70 works from Arabic into Latin, philosophy, science, mathematical works, including
including a work by the Greek mathematician Euclid called The Elements, mm-hmm. which was so influential that it was still used in school in the United Kingdom until the 1960s. He worked very closely, Gerard, with Arabs and Jews. He was friendly with them. He got his text from the Muslim family and he worked with a Mozarab, so a Muslim living under Christian rule called Khalid. They translated from Arabic into Spanish and then Gerard translated from Spanish into Latin. They had a system. He's an extraordinary example of intense interest in what was going on and an appreciation of the value of it and also an extraordinarily prolific translator too. That's a very interesting story. Would you say that this had a huge or sizable effect on the European Renaissance and these texts, these sciences, these philosophies were eventually taken up in the universities of Europe, North and Western. Would you say that Italian Renaissance that kicked off as well as the European Renaissance had Mm. something to do with this translation movement from Arabic to Latin? This is a very complicated question, Mm -hmm. Wahid, actually. Yes, I think it did. The main and the rarely acknowledged effect of the learning of the Andalusian Muslim scholars on the Renaissance was the revival of Greek science and philosophy in Arabic Mm -hmm. translation. The main works of Renaissance humanism in Latin were focused on literature and history. Those texts were available from Greek scholars, Byzantine scholars, who belatedly brought those texts to Western Europe. Greek science and philosophy had been lost to the rest of Europe until Mm -hmm. it was regained through the Arabic and then the vernacular translations. A couple of examples show how important that was. If we think of Leonardo da Vinci, now here's an interesting example, his drawing of the Vitruvian Man, which is the man in the circle, an incredibly famous drawing. It was said to have been informed by a group of Muslim scholars known as the Brothers of Purity in the mm-hmm. 10th century, who showed, like Leonardo, that the centre of gravity of the body isn't actually the navel, but below it. And this was crucial to this drawing. What's interesting is that, as far as anyone knows, Leonardo only knew Latin and Italian, but somehow mm. he must have come across this knowledge. Also said that Leonardo invented the camera obscura, you know, the early version of our modern-day cameras. But the Persian Al-Hayam from Egypt, he invented the camera obscura long before Leonardo did. So there seems to be an influence there. So the great Copernicus, who's meant to be the father of modern astronomy and the great mm-hmm. heliocentric revolution and everything, the founder of modern astronomy, based his theories on the Andalusia astronomer Al-Zarqali's famous Toledan tables, which were charted the movements of the stars, and they were 11th century tables. He based his planetary theories on the works of another polymath, Nasir al-Din, in the 13th century. Just those two examples of really key figures in the Renaissance, whose theories in a way depended on Arabic learning, I think is significant. Yeah, yeah. It's always hard to draw specific causal links, that part in history to that. You can definitely see, yeah, just like a collaborative assimilation of different knowledge and building up of knowledge like there is today with globalization and stuff, right? That's quite interesting. Thank you very much for answering that question. I want to be quite fair to all sides of the arguments. We talked about the positives of Al-Andalus and it definitely was a force to be reckoned with in terms of the sciences, in terms of governance, in terms of where it stands within history and the influence on European Renaissance and the world today. Can you talk us through from your perspective where some of the notable negatives of Andalus, would you say, what do you think they could have done better or they got it wrong at that period of time? The thing that most easily comes to mind as a negative was the fact that so often the Muslims shot themselves in the foot in the sense that they constantly fought each other. There was constant clan warfare. When the Berber tribes arrived in the 11th and 12th centuries, they fought and overcame the, what were by then, native Muslims in the peninsula. There were constant clan disputes. One of the things which was responsible finally for the fall of the Emirate of Granada was the Internecine warfare 
warfare that went on. The whole dynasty of the Nazarids really is a, a litany of backstabbing and fighting between families, between siblings, between father and son. In the end, that significantly weakened the power of the Muslims to defend themselves against the Christians. They weren't united. They didn't have a united front. That was particularly the case with the last Muslim ruler of Granada, Muhammad XI, who vied with his father and with his uncle for the throne. Probably what would have been much more sensible, much better, would have been if all three of them had united against the Christian forces. It weakened them from inside. For me, that would be the one standout area of the history of Al-Andalus, which was unfortunate for Muslims, certainly. That makes sense. Just to follow on from that, and just talking mm. about as the collaboration and the collaborative spirit of between the Muslims, Christians, and Jews that happened, why do you mm. think that today, or this might have even started quite a few centuries ago, that this history is swept under the rug, or there are people and there are forces which try to expunge out this history completely, particularly the nativity of Arabs or Muslims in Spain, or or Europe, for that matter, and that collaboration that's there. It would be good to know what do you think are the reasons for that. I was reading about Petrarch, the, the Italian philosopher, and how he was quite against specifically naming the Arab philosophers or Arab writers when reading Greek texts and stuff like that. So was there some, quote-unquote, European washing happening of a lot of the scholarship that had Muslim influence, or was there like a latent or active project to completely reframe this contribution and collaborative spirit between the Abrahamic faiths that's there. This is interesting because I'm trying to develop some of these ideas in the book I'm writing at the moment, which is actually, it's a history of the encounters between Christians and Muslims in Europe from the year 711 up to the present. This is something I'm looking into in some depth. The antipathy, which has unfortunately developed over the centuries, was a literary campaign, particularly on the part of the Christians, to denigrate what they perceived to be the enemy. This Mm -hmm. is built up over centuries that there's been a negative perception of Muslims has evolved. It started as early as the 8th century with, for example, the writing of the Venerable Bede, the English historian, who wrote a very negative piece about Muslims, even at that early stage in the whole process. As history has evolved, as Muslim power began to decline, this was the great period of glory, wasn't it, Al-Andalus, really, of Muslim power in Europe, as well as the Ottomans. This is even more significant than the Ottoman Empire in Europe, to be honest. But then when colonialism began, Muslims found themselves in a a disadvantaged position for various reasons. They developed a counter-narrative as well. I was looking actually only the other day at how the idea of a crusade was revived in Muslim scholarship Mm -hmm. in the 18th and 19th centuries particularly, but turned in reverse crusade against Christians as a kind of antithesis of what had been the Christian crusades in the Middle Ages against Muslims. A kind of negative rhetoric on both sides has evolved and it's been made a lot worse in the last century or so by things like terrorism. The perception of the average person, they don't see the whole picture at all. And as you said, all this wonderful history of collaboration, of interaction, of scholarship, learning and everything, I think it's been either forgotten or it's gone unacknowledged or sometimes Mm -hmm. deliberately erased and not referred to. And this is one of my (laughs) admissions, if you like, that I want to try and try and bring an awareness of that other side of things, to be 
honest. Yeah, that's really interesting. Just to kind of wrap things up, given this glorious history of the different collaboration living together by the different peoples of different faiths and ideas, what do you think we can apply in today's world, in today's conflicts, and whether we're talking about the Israel-Palestine issue between Jews and Muslims that exist, or broadly the spats that you see across different nation states, the spirit of Cordoba actually teaches us when it comes to how to work together as different people with different ideas and different ethnicities and religions? Yeah, that's a great question, Wahid. As I've looked for our points of harmony, what are the things that have brought Christians, Muslims, Jews as well together, as well as the things that have driven them apart? These are the things we've been talking about this afternoon, that what brings people together is the pursuit of learning. What brings them together is playing music in the medieval courts, particularly the Christian mm -hmm. court of Alphonse X again, and from all three religions all played together. That reminds mm -hmm. me very much of the wonderful orchestra that exists nowadays, the East-West Divan Orchestra, which mm -hmm. was started by Edward Said and Daniel Barenboim, to and it consists of musicians from Muslim, Jewish and Christian backgrounds, particularly Muslim, Jewish backgrounds. the same Edward Said about Orientalism? Yes, yes, the that's right. Oh, wow. Okay, interesting. Oh, wow. It's really interesting. The other thing that brings people together is trade. Trade goes on mm. regardless of whether people are fighting each other or not. Trade benefits from conflict. It's important that we try to understand more and establish a dialogue which focuses upon the things that bring us together, bring those peoples together particularly. If I was going to look to an example, a model, I might pick mm. Renata because it has this wonderful multicultural, multi-religious past, not so much in the time when it was the Islamic Emirate, but to a certain extent it's true because Jews and uh, Muslims got on fine in that period. Altogether, Granada stands as an example of a place where throughout the centuries many different cultures have come together and have existed there, often side by side. Mm -hmm. We might look upon it as a way of beacon for future understanding, opening up a better understanding of the issues which set us apart, but also which bring us together too. That's amazing. On that note, we'll end it here. It's been amazing talking to you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. I feel like I learned so much in this one hour than I did even traveling throughout Spain. Thank you so much for your time and all the best with your next book. I hope to see you soon on the podcast again once you've released your next book, hopefully. Well, that'd be a real pleasure, Wahid. Thank you. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for inviting Amazing. me. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for listening to the Innovation Civilization podcast. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on all major platforms, as well as please share it with your friends and family. Thank you very much for listening and see you soon for the next episode.